ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope everyone had a good October the 1st. I would like to welcome you to the Halloween season, which I know technically the holidays do not start until the day after Halloween, but let's face it, we're there. I'm already starting to see Christmas decorations in the stores We are in the holiday season. It's not official yet, but we're there. And seeing as how today is the first day of October, I thought a good episode would be to go over the origins of Halloween and how we have gotten to where we are now. Now, despite some of the things I said in my last episode, I do really like Halloween. It's a fun time of year, particularly since I've had children. That makes it a whole lot of fun. And to kick this year off right, let's discuss how we came to have the holiday that we call Halloween. Now, ever since man began creating civilizations, fall has been associated with death. That's just something that's kind of followed along with it for all of human history. And it's not just a superstition dealing with, you know, the plants apparently die. I'm sure ancient humans didn't understand the plants were going dormant. They probably really believed that the plants died and came back to life in the spring. But you've also got to remember Halloween, you know, the winter solstice holidays. There's a reason that every single human culture has big festivals at the harvest and at the winter solstice. And that's because for most of human history, the people that you were eating and drinking with at the Harvest Festival and at the Solstice Festival, there was a very good chance that that person would not be alive by the time the vernal equinox came around and you got to have your spring celebration. For most of human history, a lot of people died in the wintertime. They're at least in the northern climates in Europe and, of course, the far southern climates on the other side of the planet, I'm sure... In the Amazon rainforest, they don't really much pay attention to the winter solstice because it's, hey, it's the winter solstice. What does that mean? Well, it's going to be exactly the same tomorrow as it was yesterday. Oh, okay. But in Europe, particularly the further north in Europe you go, the chances of the people that you were having food with at the Harvest Festival being dead six months later was pretty high. Death was just something they dealt with constantly back in those days. So that's a pretty good reason to have a festival and get everybody in the town together because you might not have many more opportunities to chat with that individual. Plus, as far as harvest festivals go, our ancestors were very ingenious about figuring out ways to preserve food. But in the harvest, you really don't have the time or the materials to preserve all of that food for the winter. So instead of just letting it spoil, you might as well throw a big party and eat it and the people can get some nourishment out of it before you get into the cold winter months. But our superstitious ancestors had all manner of mythology and superstition regarding fall and the solstices and the equinox. Uh, In Greek mythology, they explained fall and winter through the story of Persephone. The myth goes that Hades, the lord of the underworld, had had left his realm and was walking in the land of the mortals. The goddess of love, Aphrodite, decided to play a trick on Hades. Uh, She asked her son Eros, which is where we get our figure of Cupid. Eros had a bow and arrow that if he shot you with it, you would fall in love. Aphrodite convinced Eros to shoot Hades with one of his arrows. Well, shortly after Hades was pierced by the arrow, he come across Persephone, who was the daughter of the king of the gods, Zeus, and Demeter. Demeter was the goddess of uh, plants and nature. Well, Hades fell in love with Persephone, and he took her to the underworld with him and was going to force her to live there with him. 
Uh, when Demeter found out about this, she went to Zeus and demanded that he force Hades to let her daughter come back to the land of the living. Well, Zeus said that if she had not eaten anything while she was in the underworld, she would be allowed to come back. That does not make any sense whatsoever. It's like if your daughter was kidnapped and the police said, well, we'll bring her back as long as she did not go to the bathroom while she was being held in that person's house. It's one of those things that makes no sense. It just, they need that for the story to have a reason to force her to stay. It's what's known as a plot device. But anyway, Zeus and Demeter traveled to the underworld to confront Hades, and they found out that Persephone, Hades had given her a pomegranate. And while she was being held by Hades in the underworld, she had eaten six seeds out of the pomegranate. So Zeus decreed that for six months of the year, Persephone would have to live in Hades, and for six months of the year, she would be allowed to return to the land of the living and live with her mother. Well, Demeter told Zeus that she would agree to that, but while Persephone was in Hades, she would not allow any of the plants or anything to live, that the entire land would die to show her grief for being separated from her daughter for six months of the year. And that's sort of indicative to what our ancestors would do to explain these natural phenomenons. The Greeks come up with this incredibly convoluted love story to explain why the plants shed their leaves in, in the late part of the year. But actually, the holiday that we call Halloween borrows most heavily from the Celtic festival of Samhain. Now, if you look that word up, it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-N, but it's pronounced Samhain because languages are strange. But the festival of Samhain took place after the harvest. Uh, the communities would build a giant bonfire in the center of the village. Uh, the adults would dress in costumes and wear masks. Uh, the priests believe that the barrier between the living and the dead was very thin at that point, and they believed that on the night of Samhain, they would be able to speak to the ghost and predict the future. Now, the Catholic Church, or the Holy Roman Empire to be more specific, did take over the Celts uh, about 500 AD, and you would think that the Catholic Church would have crushed any of the pagan festivals that the Celts partook in, we sort of have this idea of the Catholic Church, anytime they took over a region, they would just absolutely crush any of the old religions and force the people to convert to Christianity. That's not really how they did it. They were a little smarter about things than that. I'm not saying they didn't commit atrocities along the way, but one of the things they did to sort of convince people to join the church more or less willingly is they did not force them to give up their native festivals. Uh, the leaders of the Catholic Church were intelligent enough to know that if they just stripped them of the religion just out of hand, all that was was a recipe for you to just have constant uprisings. So they would allow the pagan festivals to continue and they would either move the pagan festivals or a lot of times they would move one of their own holidays to coincide with that pagan festival. And that way they would sort of wrap the pagan festival up in an approved church holiday. And after a couple of generations, the people aren't going to remember the festival of Samhain. They're just going to remember the Catholic holiday. And it's a way to just sort of ease people into accepting the church doctrine. You know, when the Holy Roman Empire converted from the old Roman gods, there was actually uh, two festivals that they made part of their official church doctrine. Uh, the first was the day of Feralia. It was to celebrate all those that had died throughout the year. The following day was a celebration of the goddess Pomona. Now, Pomona was the goddess of fruit and trees, 
And the symbol for Pomona was an apple. And a lot of historians believe that that is the origins of bobbing for apples at harvest festivals. But the church took two of their holidays. Uh, They took the Day of All Martyrs, which was normally celebrated in the spring, and All Saints Day, which was celebrated on November the 1st. And they combined those days and did sort of a combination of Feralia, uh, the celebration of Pomona, All Martyrs Day, and All Saints Day all rolled into one. And of course, as time went on, it just became All Saints Day. Uh, November the 2nd is All Souls Day. Uh, That is the foundation for the Mexican celebration of Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. And of course, once the church moved all of these things to November the 1st and November the 2nd, that made October 31st All Hallows' Eve. Now, the celebrations for All Hallows' Eve very closely resembled what the Celts would do on the Festival of Sowen. Now, if we fast forward about a thousand years, England has colonized North America, and the colonies brought a lot of the traditions over from Europe, as you would assume. Now, the New England states really did not celebrate All Hallows' Eve uh, because the Puritans were about the least fun people that have ever walked to the planet, but the colony of Maryland and any of the southern colonies made a pretty big deal out of All Hallows' Eve. And again, this was a harvest festival. Every culture in the planet celebrates that. The American Indians had their own harvest festivals, and those traditions got rolled into the colonist celebration as well. Most of the southern colonies would celebrate what they called play parties. And again, this borrowed very heavily from the Celtic festival. Uh, each town, would they would have a giant bonfire, a parade, uh, that people would dress up in costumes. There was a lot of fortune-telling going on. People would talk about stories from people that had passed away in their family or their friends throughout the year. There would be a feast at the end of the night. It was during this time that there was sort of a new facet to the celebration, which was people would start playing pranks on their friends and their neighbors. And this is also where we start to see more of the supernatural element of Halloween coming in. People would had started telling ghost stories and tales of witchcraft around the bonfire after it got dark. And these celebrations remained largely unchanged through till about the middle of the 1800, when the Industrial Revolution spurred a huge number of immigrants from European countries. And among those were a huge number of Irish fleeing the potato famine. Now, the Irish brought with them, well, first of all, a lot of those countries celebrated All Hallows' Eve the same way the American colony or the states at that point did. Uh, But the Irish brought with them a tradition of going house to house and asking for food or money. And sort of the unspoken agreement was that if you gave these people food or money, they would not prank you or your household, that they would go somewhere else to, to cause mischief. The pranks part of All Hallows' Eve stayed tradition until the early 1900s. It had gotten to the point where there was a lot of vandalism associated with these pranks. Uh, The mischief was sort of taking on more of a nuisance to the community, more than just good-natured fun. It was at that time that a lot of these towns stopped holding a big community celebration, and it was relegated to something that people would do. They would have their friends over. It was sort of sort of divvied up amongst the neighborhoods around the town and in the schools, uh, which is where we start to see Halloween become more of a child-centric holiday. Uh, but you know, the adults would throw parties for their friends, and then at some point in the evening, they would take the children out to go house to house to ask for the food and the money. Uh, this really cut down on the vandalism that was going on. 
And while that may be good for the individual towns, I kind of feel like we may have lost something that was a lot of fun with the community bonfire and the big communal feast. I feel like that would be be pretty fun to go to now. Uh, but that model is what has slowly evolved into what we now know as Halloween. And to kick the Halloween season off right, I thought that this would be a good opportunity for me to take a giant dump on one of the mainstays of the holiday. Halloween season. Anytime you hear about ghost ships, the first one and the most famous is always the Mary Celeste. Now, the Mary Celeste really doesn't have anything to do with Halloween per se, but it is a sort of supernatural spooky story and it kind of caught the people's imagination. Now, sometimes you will see this mentioned as the Marie Celeste. That is not the name of the ship. The Marie Celeste is a story that was written after the fact, sort of loosely based on this story. The actual name of the ship was the Mary Celeste. Now, the Mary Celeste sailed out of New York Harbor on November the 7th in 1872. It was bound for Genoa, Italy, and it was carrying a few passengers and a cargo of denatured alcohol. Now, on December the 4th, it was found adrift by a Canadian vessel called the De Gracia, and it was floating off the coast of the Azor Islands. Now, that is a pretty far amount of miles away from its intended route. And when the crew of the Digratia boarded the Mary Celeste, they found that the captain's log had not had an entry in 10 days. Uh, Despite being adrift for 10 days, the ship was in very good condition. There did not seem to be any structural damage to the ship. Uh, They looked through all the passenger cabins. All the personal effects of the passengers and the crew were intact. They were not disturbed. It did not look like there was any kind of a struggle. There was place settings laid out on the dining table in the galley. And now in some stories, you'll hear that there was a meal laid out as well. That is something that was added to the story after the fact that was never in the testimony of the captain of the ship that found this boat. And there's been a ton of speculation as what happened. Um, There was one theory that tried to give an actual sort of legitimate reason for why they may have fled the ship, and it was that they thought that possibly alcohol fumes were building up, and the crew got into the lifeboat and moved away from the ship because they thought it might explode, and then either winds or storm, or for some reason they couldn't make it back to the boat. Um, That is has been debunked over the years. Uh, First of all, I feel like the best way to deal with that would be to open up some hatches and let the fumes vent off, and seems like you would need somebody there to keep an eye on things. I can't imagine everybody leaving the boat. But there's been, you know, crazy stories, alien abduction, an attack by a giant squid that somehow managed to get all the people off the boat without damaging the boat in any way, shape, or form, Uh, some sort of portal to another realm, Uh, which you would have to assume that they floated through this portal and it somehow teleported the living people on the boat, but the boat was able to just sail through and keep on going. You know, sort of the wild speculation that people always have when something like this happens. And it makes for a very good story. And it's always told, this seems like, you know, this ship was just found floating and there's all these witnesses to this ghost ship just eerily floating across the ocean by itself with no trace of any of the people that have been on it. That's not actually how that story went down, uh, but as the great Mark Twain once said, never let the truth stand in the way of a good story. 
The way the story actually went down is that the Digratia brought the Mary Celeste into the port of Gibraltar. Half of the crew from the Digratia had moved on to the Mary Celeste to sail it back into port. They did not go to the police or to the newspapers to tell this story. They went and filed a claim for the salvage on the ship. And when they were filling out the paperwork, this story of quote-unquote finding this ship adrift with no trace of the crew or passengers is what they put down on the paperwork of their salvage claim. Now, if that sounds a little fishy, you're not alone. There was an inquiry opened up, which I'm sure that they do an inquiry for any salvage claim. Uh, This particular one lasted much, much longer than a normal one. This inquiry went on for two months. The Attorney General of Gibraltar, a man named Frederick Solly Flood, was absolutely convinced that this was an act of piracy. That's why this inquiry went on for so long. Uh, He had officials from the British government come in to inspect the ship to look for damage. He had officials from the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy come and inspect the ship. Uh, They found traces of what they believed were blood on the captain's sword. Uh, They found some marks that looked to be made by a sword and one that looked like it was made by an axe. Basically, what was going on at this point was Attorney General Flood was more or less putting Captain David Reed Morehouse, who was the captain of the Digratia, and his crew on trial for piracy. Now, like I say, the inquiry went on. It started on December the 17th, and it did not wrap up until February 25th. The only reason that it ended at that time was because nobody could come up with any conclusive evidence that there was wrongdoing. Uh, The officials from the U.S. Navy and from the Royal Navy, they sort of had opposing views. Everybody thought maybe something else had happened. Some of these people that knew ships thought that the damage was caused by weaponry. Some thought it was just natural wear and tear that a ship undergoes while it's being used. But essentially what happened is that Captain David Reed Morehouse and his crew were let go uh, simply because there was no concrete evidence that they had done anything wrong. Uh, But Attorney General Flood was 100% on the side of this was just simply an act of piracy. In fact, when he signed the paperwork approving the salvage, uh, he told the people in the open court that the crew of the DeGracia would be under suspicion in the court of public opinion for the rest of their lives. And you know, one little one little final insult at the end of this story is because it was under such odd circumstances and they were under such suspicion of having committed piracy, uh, the salvage that was paid out on the Mary Celeste was about one-tenth of the actual worth of the ship, which was far, far below what you would normally expect to get if you bring in a derelict into port. Now, I know that people are just trying to make a good story, and this is you know, much more fun than the actual, you know, it seems pretty clear that the crew of the Gracia just murdered everybody and stole the ship. But there are so many things out there that are just legitimately bizarre and spooky. You don't have to make something up out of whole cloth, and it irritates me that the whole trial and the prosecutor being convinced from the word go that this was a crime and not just a, wow, look what, this is weird, look what we found. That bugs me, and it takes all the fun out of the story for me. But again, don't let the truth stand in the way of a good story. All right, guys, on that note, happy Halloween. Uh, I will bring you some more stories through the history of Halloween through the month. Uh, There's a couple of these that I really find interesting. 
All right, but guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you're having a good start to your weekend. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, please leave me a like, subscribe, and comment. And you can leave a comment at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com or at the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys, have a good weekend. Enjoy the start of the holiday season, and I will talk to you on Monday. Thank you very much.